This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. It's a weigh-in. It's about helping brands find a way in to connect with its consumers digitally. Back with us to tell us a little bit more, give us an update, Scott McNeely. He's chairman and CEO at Way and former co-founder of Sun Microsystems. Scott, joining us on the phone from Denver. Scott, nice to have you back with us. Tell us, remind everybody what weigh-in is about. Well, so weigh-in is a a way to uh, engage your consumers. People are a little tired of watching TV uh, and print and billboards, and you don't gather any kind of insight on who's there, who's watching, who's uh, who's engaged with your your brand. So we're doing a digital marketing that's something other than just the thirty second thirty second uh, Roman Polanski movie that an <laughs> ad agency puts in front of you when you're trying to do something on the web. We're we're an engaged environment that uh, allows you to gather what we call uh, declared data as opposed to third party or uh, implicit data. Uh, and, and I think uh, uh, the Facebook founder spent some time this week trying to explain why uh, a free service was actually using people's data. So we uh, we actually uh, give you an ex- declared information. Data is information willingly and actively given to you by your consumers, uh, and window into their motivations, interests, intentions, and uber relevant information. That's all explicitly granted, usually in the form of some sort of a a payback or a reward for giving them that data. We create online experiences uh, digitally that run on their their omni-channel. They run anywhere on your Snapchat uh, or on your Instagram or on your website or microsites or in within your mobile apps. We allow you to create these experiences that uh, gather those insights fairly, honestly, openly, and explicitly. And you guys have a website, correct? We do weighin.com, W-A-Y-I-N.com, or you can follow me on Twitter and and uh, catch some of my uh, <laughs> more more focused uh, <laughs> tweets on what we're doing with weigh-in. So wait, and I'm just looking at your website too, and it talks about how you guys, you know, gather what people say about products and services um, on things like Twitter and Facebook. You analyze it, you make some sense of it, and you give it back to the maker of those products and services so that they have, what, a better understanding about what people think of their product, and then they use that. Well, there's, we do all kinds of experiences. Uh, a perfume maker created an experience where you said, what's my ideal fragrance? What do I like? What do I not like? And you click on a bunch of things, and then they actually manufacture a custom personalized fragrance for you and send it to you. Hmm. They've learned a lot about you. You've gotten a customized product, and uh, everybody is, is thrilled to death. Other uh, travel companies or airlines will tell you what's your favorite kind of destination, what do you like to do, do you want to go as a family, do you want an adult or a family experience. You click on a bunch of things, and then it recommends destinations to you and offers you a uh, a coupon for an airplane ticket to that destination. It's those kinds of experiences where uh, declared data is gathered, but it's an engaging and a useful and and, and a powerful transaction that Mm -hmm. ends up with a nice reward at the end of it. How productive is it for the brands that ultimately work with you guys? What's the payoff? What do they see? 
Well, the payoff is they see an absolute uh, click-through rate or click-to-buy a conversion rate, as we call it, that is uh, very explicit, unlike on a TV ad or a billboard or, you know, naming rights. Um, you know, out in California, they've got AT&T Park. I mean, how does AT&T know that people walk into the ballpark and actually click through and buy a, 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 a media plan or a data plan because of, uh, the naming rights on the book. We give them absolutely digital, digitally explicit uh, data on that, plus they get the declared data on their customer. Plus, if you engage with a customer and they're actually using the keyboard, the touchscreen, the microphone, and the camera in their engagement with you on their mobile or or a computing device, you right. know you're getting far more uh, loyalty and brand uh, recall. I got to ask you. Got about a minute left here, so I'm hearing you talk a lot about data, and I think we're all a little bit of an overload uh, in terms of use of data, thanks to all the Facebook testimony and the hearings up on Capitol Hill uh, this week. You know, in terms of what you guys are doing, um, how does that all fit in, and what do kind of consumers, we consumers, need to understand about data and the use of it? Well, I mean, I, I tell my four boys, I said, you know, anything you put out on the Internet is a digital tattoo. Get over it. What, and, you know, there's a 40-page click-through license that you did that basically um, you have to assume assigns all rights to your content to somebody else. And, and so you, know, you need to know and understand that and act and operate uh, freely and knowingly that, you know, stuff on the Internet's a digital tattoo that, uh, could go viral at any any nanosecond without your control. And I just tell them to operate in the world that way. Uh, the biggest and scariest person to have my data is not Facebook. It's not Google. It's not uh, Procter & Gamble or any of those people. It's the government. And uh, that's the other thing that nobody – I love the fact that we have a whole bunch of congressional – um, data criminals up there uh, grilling a, a poor CEO of a private company. And you know what? I don't have to use Facebook. I really honestly don't have to use Facebook. But I sure as heck have to use the IRS, the DMV. Uh, I have to use uh, yeah. Obamacare and all these other things. So, right. you know, it's scary as all get out to have the government have data. And that's the one we ought to be scared of. I'm so glad we got some time with you. Scott McNeely, chairman and CEO at Way in joining us on the phone from Denver. Everyone wants a friend who's responsible because they always do the share. When you need them, they'll be there. ESG investing, it's all about investing focused around environmental, social, and government uh, governance, excuse me, factors being responsible. Our next managers, uh, our next manages an ETF that incorporates those ESG factors. Let's head to Austin, Texas. Bob Smith, co-founder, chief investment officer at Sage Advisory Services. He's back with us. He joins us on the phone from Austin. Austin, Texas. Bob, nice to talk with you again. Uh, tell us a little bit about the ESG Intermediate Credit ETF Fund. Um, you guys started this off, what, about a year or so ago? Yes, we did. And tell us about uh, to the premise and, and, the, and the index kind of it revolves around. Sure. And, and it's good to talk to you again, Carol. Um, the ESG uh, ETF that we brought to market last year is optimized for basically environmental, social, and governance issues. And what are we looking for? We're looking for those entities, those companies that actively employ policies that are leading towards building sustainable businesses, business models, and good outcomes for all stakeholders. 
And so we want those companies that are the best actors and the best intended companies that are issuing bonds that really want to improve their performance, not only fundamentally, but also in terms of their participation in the global community. Well, okay. So what's the most important? Is it the financial outcome and building the sustainable business or making sure that men and women are paid the most, that they're not, you know, mucking up the environment? I mean, what's the most important? How do you weigh these different factors? That's a very good question because, oh, there's, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But I think in order to really look at this effectively as a credit analyst, as as an investor on behalf of others out there, what we want to be most concerned with is what are those environmental, social, and governance issues that are going to have the deepest and most important financial impact on the outcome of the organization going forward. There are lots of important issues out there, but we want to look at the ones that have deep financial impact on earnings, on the quality of those earnings, and on the strength of the balance sheet. And if we focus on those factors, whether they be environmental, social, or governance, I think that we're adding a risk mitigation tool, and we're looking for more enhanced businesses that are going to flourish as we go forward. And so, again, financially material factors are really the most important things. Now, give you an example. Environmental issues are important for all of us, but quite frankly, for banks, it's relatively low compared to how well they're governed. And there have been so many episodes lately in the financial services sector about bad governance. However, if you go to an energy company or you go to a utility company, environmental issues are probably going to be much more important to look at in terms of financial materiality. So you have to know what industry you're in and what are the issues that have to be weighed higher and those that have less import in terms of financial materiality. And that's kind of what we do in terms of trying to pick out the one, the, those industries and companies that we think are going to be most successful, depending upon what those factors are that drive their businesses that are really ESG-oriented. All right, so I'm going to be a little bit provocative here. But so you've got a good bank. You love the financial um, sustainable model in terms of sustainable business model that this particular, let's call it Bank A, has. And yet, when you start to dig into it, there's harassment charges. They're not paying women as much. I mean, how do you then, what do you do? Oh, my goodness. You know, it really does come down to the G. I mean, and this is the thing that everybody thinks that they're getting, but you really have to dig into factors and what kinds of things that are important. We're looking at board composition. We're looking at audit committee structure, executive compensation, what do they do to pay lobbyists, things of that nature. The disclosures of this information are getting to be better and better and better. In the past, it was very hard for investors to get at that kind of information. And in today's world, with the help of you know people like Bloom, and so forth, my goodness, there's so much more information out there and available that to be a good fiduciary steward and to look at this kind of stuff and make evaluations that are really futuristic in terms of looking at how well this company is going to perform going forward is really helpful to mitigate risk. And those are the things that we look for. And you're right. You know, things like, you know, gender diversity, things like, you know, how officers are paid. How is the board structured versus the operating management? These are pivotal issues when it comes to looking at governance and particularly in financial services. As we all well know, in recent months, we've seen too many you know, episodes of where bad governance, no matter how good their business model, bad governance can collapse 
an entity very quickly. You know, and, and it's, so, it's interesting too, Bob. I recently um, hosted a panel that was just on e not just, but it was on ESG investing, uh, and it was fascinating to to talk to various folks that are really well. Uh, that are very much involved in that space. And one of them in particular stood out for me in that uh, the firm that she was involved in, I mean, they really look at being proactive in this space, you know. And I guess my question to you is what what do you see as your responsibility and your role as an investment manager in being an agent for change, more proactive in making companies, good companies that maybe have great sustainable business models, but maybe not so good when it comes to governance or some other issues to push them to be better on those fronts as well. What do you see as your role? Excellent question. Stewardship. It's all about stewardship. And what we try to do is we look at how proxies are voted. Uh, we look at, you know, things like I said, board composition. We look at the types of people. What is the turnover on the board? Have people been there for 25 years and are never going to change and never bring anything new or a new dimension? How weighted is it in terms of gender and diversity and background? These are extremely important issues that we look for. And so we do stewardship scoring uh, and we look at these factors and we internalize that and we put that as part of our screening process. Not only do we do it at the individual company level, but we also also look at iShares, State Street, Vanguard, because we see how they vote those proxies on behalf of our investors and the ETFs that we buy on their behalf that are actually produced by iShares and State Street and so forth. So for us, it's not only the companies, but it's also the guys who create the ETFs that we want to look at as well. Got it. Good to get some time. Hey, Bob, thank you. Bob Smith, co-founder, chief investment officer at Sage Advisory Services. Bob, joining us on the phone from Austin, Texas. That's where they're based. everybody. A little Bruce Springsteen for you on this Thursday afternoon. A little Dave Wilson for you as well. And a little chart of the day. What do you got for us, Dave? You'll be coming down. That may well uh, summarize how Pavilion Global Markets looks at profit margins going out the next few years. They went through sort of a thought exercise on, well, looking out seven years, where might stocks be headed and one thing they really focused on is this issue of profitability, and not just in the U.S., but also internationally. Uh, they used the MSCI USA index, sort of a variation on the S&P 500, uh, as a benchmark uh, for U.S. Uh, stocks. And then they looked at MSCI's EFA index, which tracks Europe and Asia, to get a sense of what was happening internationally. And when you run the numbers, you see that uh, margins in the U.S. focusing on net income as a percentage of sales uh, I mean, they're historically high here at about 9%. You look back over the last couple of decades, the average is closer to 7%. They've actually stayed up throughout the bull market uh, that we've seen since 2009, and arguably they're one of the reasons why stocks have managed to keep going all that time. And you've seen a more recent sort of pickup in margins internationally. Uh, when you run the numbers for the EFA index, you see that at the end of last year, uh, you were talking 8% for the first time since 2008, when, of course, uh, the world uh, shook 
uh, with a bear market. And this so, is profit margins for European and Asian companies. Exactly. Okay. So, and their take is uh, pavilions that, you know, sooner or later we're going to get another recession, and recessions are ultimately what kill profit margins. So it's something that there's more room for, as they put it, a reversion to the mean, the whole idea that historically high levels won't hold up. If you want to know more, folks, send me an email. I'll get you the chart, the explanation that goes with it, and everything I do going forward. The email address is dwilson at bloomberg.net. That's dwilson at bloomberg.net. Dave Wilson, thank you so much. So from chart of the day to a check on the world of media, ESPN launching a streaming service, ESPN's parent company, Disney, being forced to make a bid for Sky. So much going on. Chris Palmieri is Los Angeles Bureau Chief at Bloomberg News, joining us from that bureau. So, Chris, where should we start? Um, the streaming service... Disney may be forced to make a bid. What do you think is the most important thing here when it comes to Disney today? Uh, what about Bob Iger's presidential run? <laughs> I was going to let you do that one. one. Well, let's go, <laughs> let's go right there. What came out today? Vogue magazine, of all places. Iger gave an interview to them and sort of acknowledged for the first time that he was seriously considering a run and that this uh, you know, mega deal for uh, Fox— uh, made him uh, stay at Disney. Uh, you know, he, it's been rumored for a while. He sort of hinted it. He would joke from time to time saying, oh, you know, not with this wife, I don't. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, he, um, you know, he said pretty, pretty uh, clearly that he was thinking about it. And he had his friend Oprah Winfrey uh, openly, uh, you know, talking about his uh, thoughts on the on a run. So. Does it, but but now that's not happening. Well, he didn't completely rule yeah. it out. <laughs> That's what I thought, right? Yeah, I mean, but he did sign a contract that goes for another three, four years with Disney now. So, um, you oh, know, come uh, on! If yeah. he goes to the board, says I'm thinking about being president, can we kind of, you know, let me out on this contract? You don't think they would? Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> just saying, just saying. <laughs> All right. So, tell me a little bit about um, ESPN Plus streaming service. What's that about? Five bucks a month. Yeah, launched today. Uh, this has been a widely anticipated move, and it's uh, you know as we said in our story, uh, you know this is like it used to be. You used to try to get as many a big as audience for your TV show as possible. This is a is like let's find how many little niches we can we can find and aggregate. So this is a service five dollars a month, as you said. You're getting. Uh, all kinds of sort of division two sports, college sports. Uh, you're getting, you know, sort of not uh, the major leagues, but uh, but lacrosse. You're getting, uh, you know, fencing. You're getting. Uh, uh, there's going to be one uh, baseball game uh, a day. There's going to be major league soccer game a day. Uh, you know, and all kinds of other uh, right. niche sports. And so uh, they're they're hoping, and this is really a, a toe in the water of the uh, bigger picture here, which is Disney is trying to go direct to consumers. They've, as they said, we've been a wholesaler of entertainment in the past, whether it's going through movie theaters or going through Netflix, and uh, now they're trying to have a direct relationship and sell this great volume of content that they have. Yeah, and hopefully get another revenue stream. Hey, just got thirty seconds here. So what's this about? Maybe being forced into a takeover offer for Sky. Well, this is, you know, obviously they made this $50 billion deal to buy Fox, and part of that was contingent on acquiring Fox's stake in Sky, the U.K. broadcaster. And uh, under U.K. rules, uh, you know, they've got to complete a deal uh, even if uh, if Fox is not allowed to complete its deal. Hmm. So so this creates essentially a floor for Sky investors that uh, that the, even if Fox is disallowed to acquire the other part of uh, Sky that it doesn't own, Disney yeah. would have to step in with that offer. Wild stuff. Good stuff. Chris Palmieri, thank you so much. L.A. Bureau Chief uh, from our L.A. Bureau. 
uh, focused on what they do very well. And when you say been. that they're a good management team, does that mean you've met with them? Uh, th this team, I have not met personally with them, um, but I'm looking at their actions. And yeah. most of what I need to know about them is in the financial statements, which we have gone through like 10 years of them. And I've actually tracked, I've tracked this company since 2001 or 2000, maybe even. Yeah. So I'm very familiar with it. Right. Um, um, and it's not that complicated of a business. They buy a warehouse and lease it out. It's pretty clear, right? <laughs> you can tell just from looking at it. Yeah, yeah. Um, another name that you like is TransCanada Corp. Talk to us a little bit about that one. TRP is the ticker. Yeah, TRP. Um, it's, it's a larger business, um, obviously Canadian, right. um, as you mentioned. Pipeline company, right? Uh, yeah, nat gas natural gas pipeline um, throughout Canada and into the United States. Uh, one of the largest... Uh, you know, independently or publicly traded uh, pipeline companies in the world. It, ha it, it shares kind of um, elements that a utility would um, because it, it really is a utility. Right. Um, they, you know, essentially get a clip a coupon off of their um, off of the, the, the clients for the use of the pipelines. And it's not dependent on the price of oil or gas or what have you. So it's a pretty steady source of income. And with that, they, they uh, in general, pay out much of it in the form of dividends. And yeah, 5% dividend. Again, greater than 5% dividend. Is that what you're always looking for, is a dividend? No, it just happens that in, in some of these interest rate-sensitive companies that they are they usually have a dividend attached to them. Um, it's interesting, too, that you and I um, – started talking a little bit about Bitcoin before we got going. Yeah. And you recently wrote about it, I think, uh, late last year, um, watching the run-up. And you had a chart in some of your research. You pointed it out to me, and I just want you to point it out to our, our, our listeners. I know they obviously can't see the chart, but it gives you some perspective. Sure. Just tell um, us about it. You know, you can always pull it from our website, um, centerstoneinv.com. Uh, uh, but essentially, the, what I was trying to point out is that... Um, what, what, so the, the concept of... Uh, digital currency, I think people have kind of bifurcated in two different uh, forms or or, or uh, segments, right? One is the idea of blockchain mm -hmm. as a technology. And as I um, think about that, I'm just not smart enough to get my head around it. So I don't have an opinion on it. Um, I do have a strong opinion, however, when I see a, an obvious speculation um, or even a bubble. And that's what I was trying to point out into in the in the um, report in my my fourth quarter um uh, commentary: The scale of the bubble is much greater than it w the internet bubble. For instance, the years 1998-1999, right? Internet stocks went up about seven times. Uh, these, this last two years, ending um, last year in December, the uh, uh, Bitcoin went up like 30 times in two years. Yeah, the, char the chart's remarkable, and yeah. it just shows you how much more Bitcoin had gone up. Mm -hmm. And we thought the tech bubble was kind of crazy, but it's just great perspective. Yeah, thanks. We have to run. Always good to get time with you. I appreciate it. Abe Despande, he is founder and chief investment officer at Centerstone Investors. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.